So good to be with you guys. Advent, this is actually on the church calendar the first Sunday of Advent. But uh, everybody else, we're hipsters because we were into Advent way before anybody else. So we've caught up to speed. So that's why we finally sang Christmas songs. Thank you, Dave, for leading us in that. All right, we are continuing our Advent series in the Psalms, and so John is going to read for us from Psalm 24. If you have the Version Bible app, you can click on events and find all the notes in Scripture there with Reservoir Church. Otherwise, it will be on the screen, or you can have your Bible open on your lap, and uh, he'll read it, pray, and then we'll get into it and see what the Lord does. Okay. Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell with therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful, Lord, that we can be called the children of the King of Glory. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would we would have fun. That this uh, season of celebrating Jesus' birth would re-energize us. That we would um, just put uh, that that Your Holy Spirit would put that wind in our sails. That we would um, push forward. That we would identify of how to love others and serve others. We love you, Lord. Please speak through Jonathan this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Good recall of the wind in our sails, bringing us back a couple of weeks. I need some more wind. Um, I was in a church that they had, uh, our last church actually, the senior ministry was called Second Wind, which I always just heard as Breaking Wind, um, but that's neither here nor there, right? Okay, God conspiring to spread his glory is compassionate to those who seek him, and that's enough to keep us as we wait for him to come again. That's a, a long, big idea for us this morning. But the God of the universe, the one who owns everything, who created all things, as he is conspiring to spread his glory to fill the earth, he is at the same time then compassionate to those who seek after him. And that compassion is enough to keep us as we wait for him to come again. Now, last week was nice for me. Dave Hansen preached, one of our elders. It was nice to have a week off of preaching. And I know uh, some of you think that's, that's all I do in ministry, but it is a big chunk of what I do each week. And it was nice to have a bit of a break to spend some time with the families and kids were off of school, but I was fully back in the office this week. And as I re-entered the routine, I couldn't help but think of Sisyphus, right? You guys know who he is in Greek mythology, Sisyphus. I can't even say his name properly, right? But that dude, he was actually like 
from the myth, he was the founder of Corinth. So this is kind of like some great history. But as a king, he was tyrannical and he would kill visitors that would come to his city just to show off how powerful he was. And so that violation, though, of what they would call divine hospitality angered the gods. And then in order to punish him for the trickery of others and even his own cheating death twice as they were trying to kill him, the gods forced him day after day to roll an immense boulder up a hill only to have to do that again the next day. It would roll back down when it reached the top and he would have to start over. And so repeating the action for eternity, this was the punishment or the suffering that he had to experience. And through that classical interpretation of the myth then, tasks that are both laborious and futile are described as... Um, how do you say his name? Sophist- what? Sisyphian. There you go. See, I don't even have to. Why can't I can't pronounce some things? I don't know. I'm a Nebraskan, right? So that's how life, like life and work can feel. And, it, and especially like Tuesday, it was beautiful. We had this prayer time with some dear friends in Asia, and nearly everyone in the church was participating in that Zoom call, and that was so encouraging. But as an insecure pastor, right, there's a discouraging moment when Julie talked about a specific point from Dave's sermon on Sunday. And it's like, oh, she would totally forget what I said five minutes later. But when Dave preaches, she remembers, right? And then, so things can feel futile when we just go to them wrote, routinely or rotely, right? And I don't relate to Sisyphus and being a devious tyrant. Like I try to avoid toxic leadership. And so we're good in in that sense. But the sense of rolling that boulder up the hill day after day, like life can feel like that. Maybe you experience that. Regular life can be just like that. Even when we get a break, when we get to hit the beach, we still have to go back to the boulder in the regular schedule of things. Or even just that climbing of the hill to arrive, to achieve, to get ahead in our world is always before us. And it's not just work life, is it? Right? It's in our relationships. They can feel like carrying a boulder up a hill and then having to do that over and over again. Uh, War against sin in our own lives, that repetitive nature of warring against it and doing it over and over again. And then we look beyond ourselves even and we see the world around us and it all seems futile, right? Like what's the point of it, of human struggle, of war, of hunger, of abuse? And all the things that just feel too big to handle for us can feel like a boulder that we have to take to the top of the hill day after day. And during Advent, if we're doing it right, we've already talked about it. We have permission to be honest about these things, about the drudgery of climbing up the hill every day. And if the church is doing Advent right, then we gather recognizing the darkness of our existence and look each other in the eyes and say, actually, the hilltop has come down to us. And our lifting now is light in comparison to the glory that is to come. So, beloved, look up. That's what we do in Advent. In Psalm 24, I am convinced, helps us do 
just that. Now you should know, and we're working on church discipline, but Dave actually went out of order. He was assigned another text in chose Psalm 22, and we're gracious, so we let him do it, right? But he was supposed to preach Psalm 2, which is the introduction of the king that we meet in Psalm 24. But it is totally okay, because Dave showed us something vital as we wait for the final redemption of Jesus's return. He showed us the God that knows our grief, whether self-inflicted or otherwise, and it's this God that rescues us, right? And from Dave's text last week, for he who is, he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. This is the God who sees us, who hears us, who knows our grief. And then our rescuer is the one who Psalm 23 will describe as the one that restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the place of deep darkness, I will fear no evil for he is with me. His rod and staff, they comfort me. That's what All of it is now pointing to the king that we've been waiting for, the one that is welcomed in in Psalm 24. And so following that flow of the psalm, Psalm 24 tells us essentially that God's work is ongoing. It's unfolding. And then it discusses our place before him and then how we wait for his promised return. And so those will be the three movements that we'll walk through the text with this morning. But we start with... The truth that God is conspiring. Now, conspiracy is typically not a word that we would use in a positive kind of angle, right? Or in a a good light. We often think of conspiracy as something that is bad. But God is the one who is over all things, who created everything, who owns it all, as the psalmist says. Essentially is telling us that he is still up to something. Something is happening behind the scenes underneath all of our existence and it's building and it's bringing something to bear and he's extravagantly extending his grace to those that he created. It's an ongoing work. It's an unfolding of his plan. And David here as the psalmist reminds us in this song that God is not aloof, he's not uninvolved, but he's actually engaged as the creator and sustainer of all things. And we can rejoice in this. And when we enjoy creation, we see his power at work. He says, the earth is the Lord's, is Yahweh's, and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. It's all his. One writer says, God owns the world and everything in it. He created the continents and the seas He invented plate tectonics, and personally, you and I belong to God. This is where we start in order to understand how to live in God's world. We are his, and we need this. This is actually really good for us to hear, because opposing worldviews say that actually everything is chaos and random, but Scripture instead tells us that it's all created, it's all ordered, and his purpose is ever unfolding before him. And spoiler, the king of glory that this psalm is about, David actually is looking forward to here, is God himself. 
He's the king of glory. And it's affirming for us the divinity of Jesus ahead of his first arrival. We see how the New Testament writers describe Christ. Hebrews 1 says he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe with the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Paul will say to the Colossian church, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, right? So when David says that God is the one who created all things, he's speaking of Jesus in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Maybe I gave you more verses than you needed in that expression of who Jesus is, but it's helpful for us to see that he is the one who created all things. He holds all things together. And among those all things is you. And it's more than just maintenance. I think it's a conspiracy to proclaim his glory for our good, to bring his renown over all things, that reconciliation has come and is unleashed by the work of his cross. Paul will say to the Corinthian church, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul is on purpose tying creation, the beginning of all things, to that of Christ here. So when the shadows of Advent grow long and cold, when things get difficult, when it feels like we're rolling the boulder up the hill day after day, we can take heart because God is at work conspiring to build his kingdom here, to fill the earth with his glory The one who founded the earth upon the seas is at work even when we wonder where all of this is headed. When the boulder seems to be at the base of the hill every morning, he still sits on the throne. Not only is he conspiring, though, he's compassionate. And this is, oh, this is the good news. I I don't know, did you, when John was reading, was there anything of discouragement? When you you heard some of the text he was reading? If not, I'm going to lay it on thick, so get ready, right? So God is compassionate. I was going to say God is clement. Anybody know the meaning of the word clement? Merciful, right? But I figured none of you would know what that meant. It's like, oh, he reads old English books. This is great, right? But compassion, we understand, right? We get compassion. And this foundation of the Lord as owner and creator leads us to ask if he is owner and creator of all things how do we as his creation as those he owns actually relate to him and David asked this question for us as well right who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place he who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully 
Now, this is not a psalm of ascent. This is not to be sung going up to worship. And some um, commentaries will say that maybe this is a psalm that was used for bringing the ark to the tabernacle um, into Jerusalem, right? But we have no idea the actual occasion of this song. David doesn't tell us. There's no description. There's just kind of varied thoughts on maybe this is why it was. But it leads me to think that David isn't writing for worshipers coming into the tabernacle, washing their hands, and then going in to worship. I think he has something bigger in mind about who we are as people and what our need is before a holy God. And he's asking and answering the question that honestly drives most of our lives, whether we realize it or not. The things we run after, the relationships we hope for, the affirmation we seek in all of these things, it comes down to this question, how do we get close to our creator? And the answer comes back. Be innocent. Don't trust in idols. Don't look to other things for that which only God can do. Don't swear to false gods. And if that wasn't hard enough, have a pure heart while you do it. James Hamilton, a professor, says, How could a human maintain innocent hands only by having a pure heart, which is the second descriptor in verse 4, of the one who can enter Yahweh's presence. Whereas the statement about innocent hands speaks to the human's actions, the description of the heart speaks to this man's thoughts, motives, emotions, and inclinations, all of which are pure. This remarkable man who has the right to ascend Yahweh's mountain and stand in his holy place will be innocent of hands and innocent of heart. Now, I have been in like a, a church like staff meeting where this text has been used as proof that we have better live perfectly. If we really want to be God's people. We better be innocent of hands and pure of hearts. And I remember looking around the room and knowing all of the people in the circle and knowing myself best of all and thinking, we are deceiving ourselves. If we think that's about me getting up the hill. Because who among us can cast the first stone? Who is without blemish and sin? How can we live up to the innocence that is necessary that David as a psalmist is saying you actually have to, this is the only one that can ascend the hill of the Lord. This is a, a purity beyond us. Right? And like none of you is as good of a sinner as I am, which makes me worse than you, right? You understand that when I say a good sinner. But you, I know, I know most of you pretty well to know you're not innocent. Right? If you feel offended by that, good. Right? Because you, you're sinful. You have looked to other things for that which only God can provide. And so we hear this description, and if we read it right, it's the realization for us in the midst of Advent that we are at the bottom of the hill. Another writer says, when we stack up our lives against these requirements, we have a problem. Who would dare to say that they don't have the slightest stain of sin on their hands, that their thoughts are always pure, that they have never trusted a lie to protect them, and that they always tell the truth? 
These requirements, if we take them seriously, bring us to the end of ourselves and show us our sin. And rather than a clever way to read the scripture, I think that is exactly the point. So this is not a call to morality that is, morality is good. Like we should aspire to have cleaner hands and purer hearts, right? To not go after things that we know will leave us wanting. But this is a recognition that the perfection required is actually beyond us. There's something deeper that is happening here in Psalm 24. And it's the king of glory who has clean hands and a pure heart. This is the messianic king who carries righteousness, can enter into the hill of the Lord. And he says that he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. The text there is essentially that he receives vindication from Yahweh. He is the king, that he is the promised one. A friend of mine who just last week climbed Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania with his daughters. And if you were going to climb a huge mountain, that is probably one of the better ones to do because it's, it's like just walking up a thing. But you're at like, how many feet is it? 14, 9,000? It's a lot of feet. It's a high, it's a big hill, Right? But as I was reflecting on his journey with his daughters in this moment that he had, it occurred to me that it would have been easier for all of them if the summit came down to them, right? This is exactly, though, what happens for us in Jesus. This is exactly what anchors us through the waters of Advent, that another has given us standing in the presence of the Lord. That the one with pure hands and a pure heart has given us his purity so that we can dwell with him and stand before our creator. And this is what we celebrate at Advent, like reminding each other that he came. As John's gospel would say in the word, Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth and then in second corinthians for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ that though he was rich though he was pure and perfect for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich so that you could experience his innocence his righteousness his holiness Another writer says, Christians celebrate God's tabernacling among human beings, not only in the ancient era of the Ark of the Covenant, but also in the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us. And his disciples tell us that they have seen his glory and we are being built into a new dwelling place for God in the Spirit. And we say that God who made and owns the world became man in Jesus and intends for all manner of people to join in the privilege of worshiping him truly throughout this world. It's the declaration, essentially, of Psalm 22 that to get to your creator, you have to be perfect and he is God himself, this king of glory, who comes down and extends you his righteousness. And the way you get in is following the psalm. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And Jesus is the one that can ascend the hill of the Lord. And those that seek after him 
believe in him that belong to him, are united with him and given his righteousness, so then we too can dwell in the presence of God. He makes us innocent. Hallelujah. Like, you don't need a big present under the tree. That is the gift that keeps on giving forever. And even Jude, the brother of Christ, will say, we're giving glory to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. You're not meant to read Psalm 22 by itself here that you have to be perfect to ascend the hill of the Lord and then walk away discouraged. You're to read Psalm 22 or 24 next to Jude 24 because we know the one who can make you blameless and present you spotless before the Father. And although Jesus was pure, he became sin for us as he carried our sin on the cross. And he died and rose again so that our stained, guilty hands could be washed clean and our impure hearts could be purified. And how much does our creator love us? Christ came to wash and purify us from the guilt that stains us and keeps us from coming before a God who is like a consuming fire. And here's, here's the appeal of Psalm 24 in the story of Christ's arrival and Advent celebration that your creator cares for you even if you have given yourself to some of the worst things that the world has to offer. He knows you are not fit for heaven now, so his son made the way for you. And the invitation is, won't you come to him today? Let him change you. And if you know Jesus, then you will be part of this crowd that is described in Psalm 24. God's word says so, and Christ himself, your king, will lead you in victory along with all those who have gone before us in the Lord. It's so good. You can ascend the hill because he brings you there. Christ purifies us. He also then makes us into what we should be. He transforms us by his spirit into people who increasingly keep God's requirements ourselves, men and women who are self-controlled and godly, eager to do good. Not to get entry into the presence of God, but living different because we've been brought in already. And rooted in this compassionate first arrival, then we are eager for his second. That's the whole point, right? Advent, we think, oh, well, Advent just gets us ready to celebrate Christmas. It's so sweet and nice. No, Advent is to point our faces toward the future of Christ's arrival. And praise God if this is the last Advent we ever celebrated and he returned. Mm. See y'all on the other side. I can't imagine what a new Escondido is going to look like. Ooh, you think the tacos are good now? That's the third point, right? God is coming soon. Like Jerusalem welcoming her king, we keep our eyes up, expectant, active, ready for the king of glory to come in. Yeah? 
psalmist says, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. One day, the king of glory, Yahweh of hosts, the divine warrior, will come at last. The gates will hear the command to lift up their heads. The ancient doors will open and the good shepherd will see all of his sheep safely to pasture. The king is God. This messianic king is the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord of hosts. And I love it because it's repeated twice for emphasis, right? But not only for emphasis. I think it's repeated twice because he comes twice. Strong and mighty in battle the first time, defeating Satan and death on the cross and through his re resurrection, and then still to come as almighty over all things to set everything right for eternity. So this second shout, as one writer says, seems to be hinting that our king will ride up to the gates of Zion, the heavenly city, a second time with his host, a crowd of his saints following him, victorious in battle. How Paul painted it for the church in Thessaloniki. He said, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven and with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And in between that First arrival strong and mighty in the Lord of hosts. We wait in community ready to welcome our king, encouraging each other. Henry Nouwen was a Catholic priest, um, educator, and a man who gave his life to serving those with severe disability. He says, People who wait have received a promise that allows them to wait. They have received something that is at work in them, like a seed that has started to grow. And this is very important. We can only really wait if what we are waiting for has already begun for us. So waiting is never a movement from nothing to something. It's always a movement from something to something more. Just the truth of the seed of salvation, of our justification in Jesus, of being brought into the presence of our creator, being made right before God. This seed of his kingdom taking root in our hearts and lives is the promise at work already, and it's being used to bring renewal wherever he has placed us. So we don't get discouraged by the darkness of the day because the kingdom is rooted and growing in us, through us, and around us. And then now it goes on to say, those who are waiting are waiting very actively. They know that they are waiting for what is growing from the ground on which they are standing. And that's the secret. The secret of waiting is the faith that the seed has been planted, that something has begun. Active waiting means to be present fully to the moment in the conviction that something is happening where you are and what you want to be present Two, a waiting person is someone who is present to the moment, who believes that this is the moment. 
that God has called us to. So we're eager for his promised return. We keep our eyes lifted and we lift each other to see his coming and we remind each other and then we tell others the king of glory has come and he's returning again that you can truly go before the presence of your creator because you have been made innocent by the work of the cross of Christ and not unlike the first arrival. Like we live like Elizabeth and Mary. Like if you weren't here for our disability ministries inclusive Christmas fair every year. I mean, who was it? It was the Poway small group this week that got to do the, the drama. It was very dramatic, right? But one of the proofs was that the angel says to Mary, your cousin Elizabeth, who's very old, is actually going to be with child, and this is proof for you that I'm working these things out. And then in Scripture, we see their meeting of Elizabeth and Mary, both recipients of promise, pregnant with expectation of what is to come. It's a beautiful picture of how the church should relate to one another. We hear in Luke 1 from that exchange, Elizabeth says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. How do you want to be described? How, what, do you, what do you want us to put on your tombstone and not your pizza, right? I want it to be this, that I was one who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to me from the Lord. His promise that he would return. And this visit of Elizabeth and Mary is one of the Bible's most beautiful expressions of what it actually means to exist in community, to be together, gathered around a promise, affirming something that is really happening in each other. This is our active waiting then. This is how we exist as we uh, desire for the king of glory to come in. This is what prayer is all about. It's coming together around the promise that Jesus has given us. This is what celebration and worship is all about. It's lifting up what is already here and received by Jesus. This is what the table is all about. It's saying thank you for the seed that has been planted and it's saying we are waiting for the Lord who has already come to return and bring us to himself. And now it says, again, the whole meaning of Christian community lies in offering a space in which we wait for that which we have already seen. Christian community is the place where we keep the flame alive among us and take it seriously so that it can grow and become stronger in us. In this way, we can live with courage, trusting that there's a spiritual power in us that allows us to live in this world without being seduced constantly by despair, lostness, and darkness. This is how we dare to say that God is a God of love, even when we see hatred all around us. This is why we can claim that God is a God of life, even when we see death and destruction and agony all around us. We say it together. We affirm it in one another, waiting together, nurturing what has already begun, expectant for its fulfillment. So God, conspiring to spread his glory, is compassionate to all those who seek him. And that, friends, is enough to keep us as we wait for him to come again. We've got nothing else to offer. We have 
ourselves to give sacrificially, to love our neighbors. But this is what defines us. That the compassionate king of glory is coming again and his compassion is for you. So take, your, take heart, saints. Your life is not Sisyphean, whatever that word is. Say it again, John. Sisyphean. I did it. I'm never going to say it again in my life. But all of this is actually going somewhere. All of that tension of waiting. All of that eagerness for promise. But Lord, you said you would transform me. I'm waiting. All of that is headed toward fulfillment in Christ as he returns as king of glory. He's building his kingdom. He's giving wave upon wave of grace to those who seek him. The king of glory is coming soon. Merry Christmas. May we wait with anticipation that doors would be open to him, that we would rest in his grace and glory. Would you pray with me? Jesus, we come yet again together as a people saying we long for this moment where we can announce lift up your heads O gates and lift them up O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in who is this king of glory the lord of hosts he is the king of glory Lord, we thank you that you have not left us wondering but you've given us promise that by your grace you've presenting us blameless before the presence of the Lord. That you've brought the hill to us that we now live in your righteousness, in your innocence, in your purity of heart. We experience your blessing, righteousness, and we are such a generation of those who seek after you. Lord, keep us as we go through this season that so much can seem dark, that so much can seem like we have to climb a hill. Use us as a, a family to remind each other of your finished work in us that we would live with anticipation for your arrival, that we will be with you for all of eternity. And until that day, use us as you conspire to fill the earth with your glory. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. So we go to the Lord's table as we do each week.